The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. I want to welcome those of you that are here, and I know we got a, a bunch of folks that are tuning in this morning online. I want to welcome you as well. Those of you that are tuning in online, we got some folks out in the overflow, and we are, we're glad that you're able to join with us this morning as we, uh, as we uh, continue on in a little five-week sermon series we began three weeks ago. We're calling it We Are the Church. And in this series, you know, we've been just kind of unpacking you know, who we are, who God has called the church to be, and in light of that, where we sense God is calling us to go as a church. And I've got to be honest with you, this week as I was doing sermon prep, and I shared this with the elders, I sent an email earlier this week as I'm watching the, 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 the news stories locally, nationally, and globally unfold, it, it was a challenge to stay focused on sermon prep, and it felt a little tone deaf on a certain level. It's like, here, I'm trying to write a sermon as I'm watching um, horror unfold in Afghanistan. As I'm praying for brothers and sisters in Christ who are being hunted down and, and uh, a church that's being persecuted in ways we can't even fathom. Um, my wife and I and my, my family, we've been praying uh, that, and we prayed as a staff the, the audacious prayer that God would bring revival among the Taliban in the midst of them living out this persecution. But I'm watching that unfold. It's heartbreaking. I'm watching just the, 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 the ever-evolving carnage of, of this pandemic unfold in our midst and across the globe. I'm watching this hurricane that's gaining strength and barreling toward New Orleans and towards Louisiana, even as we speak, you know, Cat 5 hurricane 16 years later after Katrina. All this stuff is unfolding. Uh, smoke in the sky, 100-year drought, fires, like all of it, right? It's just like, it just feels life-sucking. And as I'm writing my sermon, it feels... A bit like, ugh, there's so much vying for my attention in my heart right now. Is this, is this the right thing for me to be doing? And then I was reminded we're talking about the church in this series. And as I wrote to the elders, I said, I'm reminded that Jesus is the hope of the nations. And the church is ordained by God for such a time as this to demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel to the whole world. And I honestly don't know if there is a more important thing for us to focus on right now than what it means for us to be the church. As things in the world seem to spiral, as things just seem to never improve, it's like, and I have later on written in my sermon, like there is no more, no, no greater, no more important institution on planet earth today than the church of Jesus Christ. We have important institutions that are doing important work all around us across the globe, but there's no more important institution on the planet today than the church of Christ. And so what we're doing in this series is that we are saying, what does it mean for us to be the church of Christ. And so today I'm encouraging you to open up your Bibles to John 15. We're going to look at a very well-known passage in the first 17 verses of the 15th chapter of John as Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is the, this final conversation. He's just left the upper room and he's speaking to them in this long discourse that John records from, from John 13 all the way through John 17. And he's speaking to them in a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. We just got done teaching through 1 John here. There's all this language about abiding. And so I want us, if you would, just let's read together these 17 verses. Uh, we'll, we'll pray and then we'll get into the sermon. John 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, Jesus says, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branch, then the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Amen. As we look at this text, it's broken up in two large sections and, and, I've, and I'm simply uh, titling these sections an agricultural analogy in verses 1 through 7 and then the application of the analogy in verses 9 through 17, two sections that we're going to be working through. But sandwiched in between these two sections is this verse 8. It's an interesting verse. Look at it with me. And if you're a highlighter or an underliner or a circler, maybe you should do that here with this passage. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified. By what? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So a disciple of Jesus is one that bears much fruit. This is proof of discipleship. That's why I'm calling my sermon today the proof of discipleship. Jesus, it seems here, is sharing an agricultural analogy and in the practical application of this analogy, he is, he is sharing his chief concern is here with disciple-making. For the glory of God, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and also prove to be my disciples. It is fruit-bearing disciples that glorify God. And that'll be the focus of our sermon today. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm, I'm just thankful for the opportunity we have in this moment to gather in person. And God, I know there are many who are gathering virtually today. And God, as we, as we think about the world that is, that is uh, unfolding around the walls of this church and across this valley and across this continent and across the globe, God, there is much that is heavy on our hearts today, many things that bring great concern. But God, we're reminded you're sovereign. You are King Jesus. Nothing happens on planet Earth uh, outside of your knowledge and will. God, you are not asleep at the wheel. You are sovereign over all things. So today as we gather and as we look at this text and as we think about what it means for us to, to abide or to remain connected to you, God, as we think about these things, God, as we, as we evaluate our own lives, as we evaluate who we are as a local church here in Medford, Oregon, God, would you, would you guide 
our thoughts by the power of your spirit. Would you move in our midst, God? Would you bring conviction and correction and affirmation in the, in the areas where that would be appropriate? Ultimately, God, we ask that you would be glorified as you produce much fruit in us as we walk in obedience as your disciples. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this last week, my family and I, we drove all the way to western Montana where we dropped my son off at a one-year Bible college, Montana Wilderness School of the Bible. And it was a pretty awesome experience. My son's a big backpacker. He loved it. And so we drove him 14 hours across, um, you know, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana. And we dropped him off. And, you know, for every mile we got closer and every minute that we got closer to our time of departure for those parents that have left their kids a long ways away, that level of anxiety is rising up. And I'm trying to think, am I saying the right things to Elijah? Have I imparted the right wisdom? What else do I need to say to him? And so, like those last few conversations, conversations were so silly. You know, remember to floss your teeth and brush twice a day and to go to town, wear your seatbelt and, you know, don't get too frisky with ladies. And I'm kind of going through all this stuff and trying to impart all this wisdom on Elijah. Don't get eaten by a grizzly bear because there was a grizzly bear attack right down the road. I'm going through all this with Elijah. And then our final day, I wrote him this letter and I left it in his dorm and we gathered around him as a family and prayed over Elijah and we walked away. And it was beautiful and it was hard. Um, but I think about Elijah being left behind. It's like, I want to be, Eli, he's 18. You know, 18-year-old boys think they're bulletproof. And they don't think about safety. And so we leave, and I think, just be smart, dude. Just, just be smart. You're not bulletproof, okay? You're, you're, you're mortal. And we leave, and Elijah, the first day, he calls us. I'm like, hey, what'd you do today? He's like, well, we hiked two miles up the river, and we did backflips off a cliff into the creek. It's like, oh, my gosh. Elijah. Be safe, dude. And then later on the weekend, what'd you do today? Oh, we got up before the daylight and we ran to the top of a mountain. I'm like, Elijah, grizzly bear attacks usually happen at dawn or dusk. Did you, did you bring your bear spray? Did you wear you know, bells? Like, no, none of it, Dad. Like, Elijah, please be safe. Uh, I'm texting him bear safety tips, you know, like, a, like an overprotective helicopter, Dad. But, you know, it's like, my, my fear was like, in, in my, you know, my son has been living in our midst for 18 years. It's his first time stepping away from mom and dad. And as any parent who leaves your kids alone for the first time ever, you're worried about what's going to happen when you're absent. Because sometimes we tend to be the moral compass, the correction, the, the presence of God sometimes in their life. And, and, and I want my son, of course, to be safe, but more important in our absence, I want my son to remain faithful to the gospel. And this is Elijah's first time apart from our family. And our prayer is that, yeah, his affections would grow for us when we're gone, but way more important than that. We want, we want Elijah's affections to grow for Jesus. We want him to learn to own his faith and his walk, which Jesus would have him walk. That's our prayer for my son. As I think about our text today, here's Jesus with his disciples. This is the night he is betrayed and arrested. And within 24 hours, he's going to be hanging on a tree placed in a tomb. He's going to die. And so Jesus knows he's not going to be with his disciples much longer. He's going to leave them. And he's preparing them for what's going to happen when he's going to be absent. And so in this last night with them, these five or six chapters here in John, this, this discourse that Jesus is just sort of instructing his disciples in all things, like what is servant leadership, what is love, what, what it means that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's talking to them about, about abiding, about the Holy Spirit, about the, the world and the allure of the world. Jesus teaches them on Christian hope and overcoming and the mission of the church. He teaches them on all of these things. And in the middle of this long discourse... Outside of our text, in chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says this. The first verse of chapter 16, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you, disciples, to keep you from falling away. It seems as if Jesus is deeply concerned of what's going to happen when he's no longer physically present with his disciples. 
You know, we, we, those of us that are romantics, we, 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 we'll say things like, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, and that can sometimes be true. But as my old college track coach used to be fond of saying, um, absence often makes the heart grow fonder for someone else. And, and the truth is, on a spiritual level, Jesus was deeply concerned about his disciples. The allure of the world and its effect on us, the worldliness as it presses in up on us, it can often lead to, to spiritual drift, to, to falling away, to fading. And it seems that that's Jesus' primary concern here as he's speaking with the disciples and he's instructing them on how to remain in the faith. He's, he's talking about what it looks like for them to remain close to him, connected to him, even when he's physically absent. And as I think about this as a pastor, over the last year and a half in ministry has been unlike any other. Who could prepare us for a global pandemic and all of the, the, the implications of that that it's had on the local church? My family and I moved here 10 months ago in the middle of the pandemic and still trying to figure out how do we do community? How do we remain connected to one another and connected to Christ in the midst of all of this? And there's all and legitimate concerns about how do we how do we remain connected when our hospitals are are overburdened and all these sorts of conversations that we've been having for for months and months and even years. And, and I can tell you as I've looked upon the church over the last year and a half, I can tell you what I've seen. I've seen some real beautiful things. I've I've seen in in the, in the pressure of all that's happened. I've seen some some fruit. I've seen people step up to the plate. I've seen people grow, but. I've also often seen spiritual drift. I mean, as this sinister pandemic wreaks havoc on our community, on the globe, it's led to people isolating themselves from one another, and it attacks the ability we have to gather in consistent Christian community. And even as we've been absent from one another, it becomes easy. If we're not meeting with each other, if we're not challenging one another, if we're not confronting and loving and rebuking and encouraging one another in community, it becomes easy to drift. It becomes easy to fall away. Absence makes the heart grow fonder for something else. And many have left the church. Not necessarily in a willful, decisive way, but in a slow, unintentional way. As it's just challenging to get together, many have slowly drifted. And so as we try to navigate life in this maddening and broken world, as the church, we are turning our eyes this morning to Jesus. And we're asking, what does it mean for us to be the church? All the stuff that I mentioned earlier, I mean, there's, there's COVID and drought and fires and hurricane and war and terrorism and political tension and all that stuff that happens in the world around us. But if there's no more important institution than the church, what does it mean for us to be the church? There's no more important theme for us to focus on right now than for the church to be what God has intended the church to be for us here at Heritage Christian Fellowship to do what God has called us to do as his church. This is why we're in this series. We are the church. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of journeying through uh, this We Are the Church series. Back in week one, Pastor Mitch was here. He, he looked at, at Luke chapter 14, and he, and he talked with us about what is the cost of being a disciple. And it's, the cost is high. It's hard. It's not easy. But the reward is eternal, and it's so worth whatever cost we may have to pay. And then, and then the next week we looked at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And, and we looked at uh, maybe how the kind of the temptation to think about what it means to be a disciple in a worldly way, but the way in which Jesus defines discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we realize that a disciple isn't someone who's got bold, self-contained strength, but, but someone who has this blessed struggle dependent on the Lord. A disciple isn't someone who's got this gifted, gained self-righteousness, but someone who's been given the righteousness of Christ through the gospel. And they walk as redeemed, forgiven saints. 
We learned that a disciple is someone who, who models secret humility and doesn't, doesn't put their, their, their good works on display for the praise of men and others. We learned that a disciple chooses this narrow, hard way, and, and few find it. Well, the world is barreling in this wide, easy way. And then last week, Pat, uh, Mike Robinson was speaking on what it means that we are part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is our king, and we are part of the, this kingdom uh, that, that, that is the kingdom of the universe. It's the kingdom of Christ. He is King Jesus. And he gave us some takeaways last week. And, and I know we had to kind of buzz through this towards the end of his sermon, but I asked him to share with me the takeaways from last week's message as we start to think about discipleship through the lens of the kingdom of God. There are some takeaways that I just thought were really powerful to consider last week if you didn't hear the sermon. As we think about the kingdom of God, the meaning and purpose of creation of you and I is not only found in Jesus, but sustained and ruled by him. And so we we were challenged to be discerning and submissive and to serve. And here's some other takeaways. If Christ is the Lord of the universe, is he not Lord of me, of my life, of my heart, of my mind? If Christ is the Lord of the universe, if he's King Jesus, does he not sustain everything in my life? And so then the question becomes for me as a disciple in the kingdom of God is, do I live moment to moment understanding my existence in this way? Is Christ a Sunday event or is he king of my life? And then the question Mike asked us to consider last week was, why am I attending Heritage? Why am I part of this church? Is it to be spiritually fed, maybe to be entertained, maybe to scratch a religious itch, or, or am I here because I want to serve the creator and sustaining king. And then the last, the last takeaway from last week's sermon that I thought was encouraging and thought-provoking was we need to expand our understanding of the gospel to the breadth described by the kingdom of God and then work in it by faith as a community, growing its kingdom disciples and discipling each other in truth and love. So I was encouraged by that. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to, in light of, of the cost to be a disciple, Jesus calls people to be a disciple, he says, but count the cost. In light of this cost, and in light of some of the wrong ways we can think about discipleship, and we unpacked that a couple of weeks ago, in light of the kingdom of God that Jesus calls us to, this week I want us to look at what a disciple is. A disciple who, who has counted that cost and who has chosen Christ. A disciple who has rejected a worldly understanding of what it means to be a disciple and is looking at the vision of Jesus for discipleship. A disciple who belongs to the kingdom and who sits under the authority of King Jesus. What does it look like for we as as the people of God to be a disciple of Christ? And so we look at this agricultural analogy in the first seven verses. And if you want to write something down, write that down. An agricultural analogy. And as we look at this, there's three characters in this analogy that Jesus unfolds, represented by three different sort of agricultural figures. There's the vine, the vine dresser, and the vine branches. And these three figures in this analogy point to important figures. And so, so the vine is Jesus. Verse 1 and verse 5, Jesus says, I am the true vine, or I am the vine. Okay, so in the analogy, Jesus is the vine. The vine dresser, the second part of verse 1, is, is the Father, God the Father. He, he's the gardener, the farmer, the vine dresser. Jesus said, my Father is the vine dresser. And then as you look as the analogy unfolds in verses 2 through 6, it's clear that disciples of Jesus are the vine branches. So we have the vine, the true vine is Jesus. The vine dresser or the gardener is the Father. And, and the branches are, are these disciples. Verse 5, I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from you you can do nothing. And if you're a part of this original audience, they were living in an agrarian culture, they would have understood the implications of this agricultural analogy. It wouldn't have been hard for them. 
They grew up around vineyards and they understood how things grew and worked. They also would have understood the nature of the, the analogy, this idea that the Father, Father God, is the vine dresser. That wasn't a new concept. If you look at the Old Testament, like Psalm 80, in this Psalm of Lament, the psalmist writes about how, how the Father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. If you look at Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist writes, Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And then speaking of God, the psalmist says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. So God the Father was known to this audience as, as the, in, in an analogy as being the gardener, the, the farmer, the vine dresser. And so if God is the vine dresser, how would this first century mind have thought about language about, about the branches? Or, or, or the language about the vine, rather. So if God is the vine dresser, who is the vine? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel. Ethnic Israel was, was, was the vine. If you go to the prophet Hosea, chapter 10, speaking about Israel, the prophet says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increases, the more altars he builds. And so, so this first century audience would have thought, okay, I get it. I get, I get that God, the Father, is the vine dresser. But Israel has been the vine. But here Jesus is saying something else. In his analogy, it's not Israel that is the vine, but Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is God's luxuriant, faithful vine. He's God's son, and Israel was to be God's son, but they failed. And even as their fruit increased, they, they turned to idol worship, as the prophet Hosea says. So ultimately, the Father sent the Son. Jesus, the vine dresser, sent the true vine. Jesus is the one whom the promises of redemption are coming through to the world. And so in this analogy, Jesus is saying to his audience, and he's saying to us today, remain in me, abide in me, the true vine. I am what God plants in the world. I am the bearer of all of his faithful promises. And then we read in verses 4 and 5 how, how, how this becomes really clear to us as disciples. How important it is that we abide and remain connected to Jesus. It's of utmost importance. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then verse 5, this famous text, my wife's life verse. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And so, so, so how important... Church, listen, how important is it that we remain connected to him? That, that we remain in Christ? Well, two times we read in, in these two verses, you and I can do nothing for the welfare of Christ in this world without remaining in Jesus. Nothing. It is of utmost importance that we abide, that we remain connected to him. Therefore, if we detach ourselves from Jesus, if we fall away by choice or by spiritual drift, we are absolutely and utterly useless. Verse 6 unpacks the consequences of not remaining in him. Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and are burned. And so as the church leaves Jesus, this is the, the effect. It's useless. There's no point, no place, no value of a church that has abandoned Christ. None. It's to be burned, Jesus is saying. And, and, and he's like Israel in the fact that he is in, in relationship with God, the vine dresser. But Jesus is unlike Israel in that Israel was not faithful, but Jesus has been faithful. And then we have this hopeful message in verse 7. Uh, if you abide in me, Jesus says. So for those of you that get it and remain, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
And so he's speaking the last few sentences to these men before he leaves. And as he prepares to leave, he's, he's offering this hope to his disciples. He's saying, I'm not going to be physically present with you, but by the power of the Spirit, you can remain in me, and, and, and I'll be with you. And you'll have access to all you need. You'll have access to the Father in heaven. And when you abide the goal of the Christian life, then is fruit bearing, not for your own glory. We don't bear fruit so we can pin it up and the world can see it. It's very clear in verse 8 why God wants his disciples to bear fruit. It's for his glory. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so knowing that his departure is near, as he talks these final words, Jesus implores those who would be his disciples, both them then and us today, remain in me. Stay connected to me. Abide in me. Any vision of discipleship, any vision of the church, any mission statement for the local church, if it's not absolutely centered on abiding in Christ and remaining in him, it's, it's a faulty, broken vision. Those who don't remain in him, those who are not his, they are, are fruitless imposters. In other words, it's impossible to go to church on a regular basis. It's, it's possible to claim Christ. It's possible to even understand church culture, to use Christian lingo, uh, but bear no fruit. Jesus talks about this in Matthew. He says, Not everyone who, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. He talks about the day of judgment, and he says, on, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Jesus says, uh, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That text terrifies me. And so as we look at this analogy, and we're going to unpack it in a practical way here in a second, it raises two very practical questions for those of us gathered here today. Okay. So, if we're to remain in Jesus, if we're to abide, uh, how does someone abide? And the second question is, um, okay, if we're called to live a fruitful life for the glory of God, what is the fruit that Jesus expects in us while he's away? Right? Two very practical questions that I think as we talk about we are the church and we want to be the church of Christ, we have to answer these questions. What does it mean for us as the church to abide? And what does it mean for us to bear fruit for the glory of God while Jesus is away? When it comes to the question, how does someone abide, look at, with me for a second, just to peek ahead at verse 10. Jesus kind of gives us a really easy answer in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, there's the answer to question number one. How does one abide? According to Jesus, to abide is to keep his commandments. Okay, so what commandments? Well, it seems as we look at the second half of our text today, Jesus highlights one particular aspect of his commandments, doesn't he? And this is the commandment that Christians are to keep according to Jesus. And we see it in verse 12 and we see it in verse 17. The command of Jesus is reduced to one thing here in this passage. It's love. He says in verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says again in verse 17, These things I command you so that you will love one another. And so here we see the application of the analogy. Why all this agricultural analogy? Well, the Apostle John, who, who is the author of this gospel, would go on to write a letter. In fact, three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We spent eight weeks in 1st John earlier this summer. And as we looked at this letter, among other things, one of the primary things that John unpacked in his first letter, his first epistle, was what it means for Christians to walk in light and be love. John, both in his letter and his pulling from the teachings of Jesus here in this discourse, he's upholding love as the central command for the Christian. 
I got to believe that John's experience here as he's listening to Jesus teach in these final moments deeply informs the teaching that we read about this summer in 1 John. And here in the middle of our passage, there's a significant shift, right? So we go from the analogy, and that ends kind of at verse 7 or 8. And then we get to verse 9, and Jesus is no longer speaking an analogy. He's moved from the vine and the farmer. Now he's talking about the father and the son. And so the second thing I want you to write down is uh, is the application of the analogy. That's the second thing we're going to get into. Here's the application of the analogy in verses 9 through 7. And here's where the rubber meets the road for us as Heritage Christian Fellowship. So if the goal of the Christian church is fruit-bearing for God's glory, as we read in verse 8, uh, what's the application? And it's simply this command to love. This is the command that Christians are to keep. And, and, it, and, it, and it's not just the great commandment, love. Though that's super important, right? Remember Jesus in Matthew 22, you know, Lord, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, you know, then the, the second part of that commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So we as Christians are called to love our neighbors, whether they're Christians or not. Whether they love us or hate us, whether they spit at us or they welcome us into their home, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So there's this command, this Christian ethic of loving our neighbor. But here in this passage, there's a special kind of love that that, that Jesus is talking about, the love that Christians are to have for one another. And back in 1 John, he talked about, you know, love for the brethren. So we're going to have a special sort of unique love for one another here in the church. In the absence of Jesus, how do we stay connected to God? Well, Jesus is saying, well, we have a real love towards our brothers and sisters within Christ. How do we stay connected to God? How do we abide while well, he's gone? Well, he's, well, he's sitting on the throne? Well, we, we have real love toward those whom Jesus died to save. There's got to be a special and unique and an affectionate love that exists within the family of God. One of my favorite preachers puts it this way. He says, our love for Jesus who sits enthroned in heaven will be known on earth insofar as we express a tangible love toward one another. The lack of love toward one another will put us in danger of falling away in regard to our love for him. And I know I've shared this with you in the past, but in my previous church, I was, I was a part of a ministry in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and our church was this beautiful reflection of the kingdom. It was a multi-ethnic body of Christ followers. Men from, and women from every tribe and tongue and language and people group in our city of Milwaukee. It had been ravaged by, ra- by racial tensions and, and it had been kind of ravaging our city for, for 50, 60, 100 years. And as we looked at all the tension that existed within local media and, all, but, 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 and we could see all these tensions and all this imbalance, but when we looked at what was happening at a community level, when the brothers and sisters in Christ were gathering together to break bread, to study the word, to spend time together, there was a beautiful intimacy that was taking place. There was, there was a special kind of unique love that brothers and sisters in Christ were having for one another that was healing and it was powerful. And as an unbelieving world looked at the church and, and the world couldn't get along, racial divides were getting, were getting deep and and, and the the divide was getting broader, we were seeing in a very practical community level that there was love and intimacy and and, and mutual submission. And that's when I became convinced that just more than ever, like the gospel is the hope of the world. The church is the most important institution on the planet. That's why I'm praying this radical prayer that God will bring revival to the Taliban. I'm just praying, this is is a crazy prayer to pray. I, I just... And we were talking about this as a staff on Tuesday. As these, as these men and women who are caught up in the lie, the, 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 the religion of death, the, the, the cult of, of, of Islam, and as they're, as they're hunting down and, and murdering Christians, I'm just thinking, Lord, so, you, in the way in which the, the Christian church of Afghanistan is modeling the love of Christ towards others and towards their brothers and sisters, God, would that just be an apologetic? 
as these, as these men that are caught up in this lie, as they're doing this horrible, horrific, treacherous thing, is God, would you use the witness of the church in Afghanistan to, to reveal the gospel to these hard-hearted men and change the world, bring revival? Can you imagine revival in the Taliban? This is why we must look intently at these final nine verses. Jesus shares with us what it must look like. He shares with us what his plan is for us, that we might not fall away, that our heart might not grow fonder for the things of this world, but fonder for him. That we might finish the race as growing disciples of Jesus and not start the race strong, but fade away in the end. And so the first thing we see that we must do is remain in his love. And that's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. Verses 9 through 11. The first thing that we must do, the very practical thing that we as a church ought to do is to remain in the love of Jesus. We are to remain in the love of Jesus. The word meno, this, this Greek word for abide, is most easily and practically translated as remain. So to abide in Christ is to remain in Christ. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in the love of Jesus. And so, most fundamentally, when we ask what is a disciple or who is a disciple, the answer is a disciple is someone who remains in Christ. Someone who has trusted Christ. And if you look at our little placard when you walk in the church, you see there's been some, these statements that we've put on these big banners as you walk in. And, and as the, way we, the language we use around here is we talk about abiding in Christ or remaining in Christ or trusting in Christ. When we think about what a disciple is, we use the language, a disciple, firstly, is someone who has faith in Jesus. That's how we define it at Heritage. Firstly, not only, but firstly, a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus. And so then the question becomes, you know, when we think about our ministry philosophy, the way we're doing ministry here at Heritage, how, how do we remain? Here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, at this local church, how do we help the men and women who call this church home, how do we help you remain in the love of Jesus? Well, we, we hold fast to our core values, right? Core value of gospel centrality, of authentic worship. And ask, honestly, what you're doing right now, by gathering, by sitting under the preached word, by gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ, by, by, by exalting Jesus with your heart and mind, you're taking a huge step right now in remaining in the love of Jesus by gathering with the saints, making this a priority in your life, being here, connecting with your brothers and sisters, worshiping God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, sitting under the authority of God's word, walking in obedience to what God reveals through his word preached to Heritage Christian Fellowship. This is one of the primary ways we want to help you remain connected to the love of Jesus. So when you sit and listen to a sermon, it's not just an intellectual endeavor, though that's part of it. Hope you take notes, but it's not just so you have a notebook full of notes. I just want to foster this love as, 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 we, as, we, as, we, as we open up the word of God and, and as we exalt Jesus and we, and we can see the beauty of Christ, the love of Christ, the hope of Christ, that it might stir affections of your heart to love him all the more, to, to want to worship him all the more that your faith would be bolstered in Jesus. I mean, when we gather to sit under the preached word, you don't need, nor do you want, my opinion. My job isn't to be an opinion giver as a, as a preacher. My job is to speak forth the very words of God to the people of God. That's what we do when we gather to worship. You don't need my opinion. You don't want my opinion. You honestly don't. You want faithful men and women and teachers of God's word to faithfully teach his word to God's. You need to hear the voice of God. 
when we gather to worship. You want to talk about football all day long? Not in the pulpit. You want to hear about my life and my hobbies and the things I love? I might share a little bit of that, but I don't want that to get, we need to, teach, we need to speak forth the words of God in this place. I've lived in a Christian bubble for so long, I think I forget how hard it is for those of you that live in, the, that live in a secular environment. I mean, I'm so blessed. I, I have Jeremy Neff and, and, and Brett Sisson and, 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 and Mitch and, and I have uh, Aaron and Kathy and Angela and we have the, the staff at Heritage Christian Fellowship and Zach. All, I, anytime I want, I walk out of my office, I have deep, meaningful, substantive Christian fellowship with really smart, godly people anytime I want. And my job is to connect with the people of Heritage. And when I connect with you, we might talk hunting or fishing or life or sports. But primarily when I connect with the people of our church, it's to talk about spiritual things. I live in this little bubble where my whole world is fellowship and, and community. But that's not your world for most of you. Most of you punch in tomorrow morning at a job you probably don't like very much. You're probably not a bunch of people that are concerned about your well-being, your spiritual health, where you go to work. Maybe, but probably not. And I forget how vitally important this hour and 30 minutes is each Sunday. Like this is the one time... When you can just walk away from the garbage of the world and just, and just drink deeply the truths of God, that, that your affections for him might be stirred up, that you might have, have a growing, abiding, fruitful faith in Jesus. This world will hate you. It will. And so gathering as the saints on a Sunday is so important. I'm not concerned about counting heads and saying, hey, we had X amount of people in church on Sunday, but, but I, want, I want the saints who call Heritage Home to be here. This is so important for us to make this a priority in our life. I think about what I heard in the, from this missionary in Afghanistan. We put, we put it on our Facebook wall. Uh, our church, we posted it where the missionaries in Afghanistan are saying, we're preparing to meet Jesus face to face. That's a very real reality for the church of Afghanistan this morning. Death, imminent death. And yet they still gather. And I think about the fickle reasons why I might avoid gathering on a Sunday morning. Man, this is so important. And so we see this agricultural analogy. Uh, this, this application to remain in the love of Jesus. The next thing we see is we see that, that uh, as disciples, we are to reflect the love of Jesus toward one another. The second thing we see in verses 12 and 13 is that we as disciples are to reflect the love of Jesus toward one another. Jesus said in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Another word you might want to use is imitate. Or model the love of Jesus toward one another. This is the very unique love that Christians are to have for one another. Jesus is speaking to disciples and he's saying, as the church, as redeemed saints, you're to love one another. With the very love I've shown you, what's the love that he has shown them? Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. What an incredible standard of love. As disciples of Jesus Christ, as, as members of the family of faith, as fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, as, 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 as subjects in the kingdom of Jesus, our community is to be a living, breathing reflection of the love of Jesus. And I have a tendency to use the word friends a little casually. You know, if I've talked to someone three times here, I, I refer to them as my friend. Casual acquaintances, people I've interacted with on occasion. But Jesus, when he uses the word friend, he's speaking to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who have been saved and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And he's saying that our true friends are those who are fellow heirs in the kingdom. And we are to have a love for one another that is self-sacrificing, self-giving. This love that reflects and, and models and imitates the very love of Jesus. And it doesn't matter how eloquent our message is. 
doesn't matter how exhaustive our biblical knowledge is. It doesn't matter how, how sacrificial our charity is because if we have not love, we have nothing. Paul said so much in 1 Corinthians 13. You're familiar with the text. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul said, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then there's those famous words in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. goes on to say, and so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So I think about this standard. This is Paul writing to a church in Corinth that had forgotten to love, a community that abandoned the love of Jesus among the gathering of the saints. And so he's writing to admonish them. It wasn't written for weddings, though it's fine to read at weddings. It was written to the community of, of saints, the kingdom of God, the church. And as I think about this little, these, few, these three verses in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, can you imagine if this was a 100% accurate description of, of what existed within the church, this church, our church, Heritage Christian Fellowship, I mean perfectly. I'm sure it exists, but can you imagine if this was the absolute truthful reflection or descriptor of our, our church? Imagine if God could continue to do a work in you and in me and in us as a body of Christ here in Heritage, here in Medford, Oregon, uh, that this would be how we were accurately described by those within and those without. Can you imagine if the body of Christ at Heritage was known as being patient and kind toward one another in all things? Can you imagine if the people at Heritage Christian Fellowship did not envy what others had or pridefully boast on any level about what they had, but instead they selflessly shared with one another and gave sacrificially to one another? I mean, when you're living within the community here, wouldn't it be awesome if there was never a thing as arrogance, but, but a beautiful humility that would foster intimacy and relationships? The people that were to belong to heritage, can, can you imagine if there, was, if there was no rudeness, but instead there was a kindness, where men and women didn't insist on their own way, but concerned themselves chiefly with the desires and the needs of those they were in community with? And even on bad days, what would it look like if the people here were never irritable or resentful towards one another, but instead lived in a culture of grace? The people of Heritage Christian Fellowship don't rejoice in wrongdoing or celebrate injustice, but collectively as the family of God, we, we pursue biblical justice and we rejoice in truth. Can you imagine if an honest and accurate description of who we are as a church was that, that we had a love that lived in our midst, a love that bared all things, believed all things, hoped in all things, and endured all things? Man, when the gospel is yielding fruit in, in the lives of God's people, when, when, when biblical community is striving to reflect the love of Christ to one another, when a willingness to lay down one's life for the sakes of, of those who are present, all of this is the description that Jesus gives us for his church. That we would reflect the love of God to one another. And that's langu the language we use around here when we talk about discipleship is very simple. The language used around here is that a disciple, yes, firstly has faith in Jesus, but secondly, we say a disciple is someone who is growing in the likeness of Jesus. 
So we believe, firstly and secondly, the disciple has faith in Jesus and that a disciple is growing in the likeness of Jesus. When we are learning to love as Jesus loved, that's us growing in the likeness of Jesus. A church that is committed to disciple-making will corporately grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. It happens on an individual level and it happens on a corporate level. That is evidence that the people of God are growing in the likeness of Jesus. And so, this is why discipleship is so important. Because in discipleship, it's not done corporately like what happens here. This is a, people sit in rows. Discipleship is when people sit in circles. It's life on life. It's, it's relationship. It's centered around the word of God. It's a place where we can live and grow within community with one another. And any healthy church that wants to make disciples has to have that sort of discipleship community present. We can't muster love for one another. It has to come from Jesus. So we first have to remain in the love of Jesus. And then as we remain in the love of Jesus by the power of his spirit, we learn and he he gives us the ability to reflect that love towards one another. So how do we do it here? How do we, as a church, reflect the love of Jesus towards one another? Well, we we gather around the Word of God. We have this core value of disciple-making. We have this core value of right doctrine. And so we have discipleship communities. Our, Our men's ministry gathers. Our women's ministry gathers. We have huddle groups that gather in homes. We have we have these affinity groups. We have Mighty Oaks that gathers. We have the Over 50 Fellowship that gathers. And we're looking for new ways to create gatherings for the saints at Heritage where we can grow in community to one another, where we can learn to reflect the love of God to one another. It's vital that we gather as saints and study God's Word together. Kathy Johnson, our Women's Ministries Director, in her, her annual ministry plan this year, she, she talked about what these community, this, this corporate gathering or this, this discipleship community aspect looks like within the context of women's ministry. This is right out of, this is language right out of her annual ministry plan. She said, as image bearers of God, we can only understand ourselves correctly through the lens of who God is, carefully studying the character and purposes of God as revealed in the scriptures. This is critical to our growth and maturity as disciples of Christ. The purpose of our study of scripture as we gather together as women, she's saying, is to increase our knowledge of God and ultimately to transform our minds, hearts, and lives so that we become reflections of him to those around us. That's a beautiful picture of what we want to see happen, not only in women's ministry, but in all of our discipleship communities. Next week, Pastor Jeremy is going to unpack that a little bit more for us. And so we see that this application of the analogy that we are to remain in the love of Jesus, we are to reflect the love of Jesus to one another. And the last thing we see here, the last thing we see is we are to reproduce the love of Jesus in others. We are to reproduce the love of Jesus and others. Look at verses 14 through 17. Another word that came to mind as I read these four verses here that wrap up our text was the word imitate. We're to imitate the the love of Jesus. And and Jesus used this very intimate language of family and friends. He's like, you're my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. This is an intimate interconnected thing. And then he says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. And then he reiterates his command. These things I command you that you would love one another. I mean, the ultimate end of the disciple of Jesus is fruit bearing. The disciple that remains in the love of Jesus and shares it with one another, the disciple that that reflects the love of Christ, the disciple that reproduces the love of Jesus and others, all this is fruit-bearing. I read this week that the, the purposes of Christ's choosing people is not merely that their sins are forgiven and that they have eternal life, but also that their lives will be fruitful and productive in fulfilling God's purposes. 
And if you look at verse 16, he uses the word go. Jesus says to his disciples, I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. Biblical fruit will result in disciples going out and making more disciples. This is the call of the church. We can't miss the significance here of verses 16 and 17 either. Those who remain in, in, in the love of Jesus and those who reflect the love of Jesus towards one another, those who reproduce the love of Jesus, they have access to the Father. Those of us who are, those of us who have faith in Jesus and are growing in the likeness of Jesus, we, we, have, we have access to the Father to intercede. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so a disciple that reproduces the love of Jesus in others is on mission. Making disciples who make disciples. That's what a disciple does. By definition, a disciple is someone who makes a disciple. Here's the language we use around here. When we talk about what is a disciple, a disciple is someone who is leading others to follow Jesus. That's the third thing. So all three go together. And you'll see it on our little placard out there in the hallway. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus. A disciple is someone who is, is being uh, shaped and formed into the image of Jesus or into the likeness of Jesus. And a disciple is someone who is leading others to follow Jesus. So a disciple who remains in the love of Christ, who reflects the love of Christ, who reproduces the love of Christ, are the same disciples who have faith in Jesus, who are growing in the likeness of Jesus and who are following others, who are leading others to follow Jesus. This is what we are to do as the church. It's the mission of the church. It's the mandate of the church. We are to go and make more disciples. Attending church doesn't make you in itself a disciple any more than being in a garage makes you a car. But certainly we want to see saints and seekers gather together. But we want, we want what happens on Sunday at Heritage to be so much more than just people gathering under a roof. We want this to be a place where disciples are being made who make disciples. We want to see disciples who have a rich and robust love in Christ relationship with him, faith in him. We want to see them being, being, being molded and shaped and transformed more and more each day into the image of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus. We want to see them putting their hand to the work of making more disciples. And so our, our mission statement at Heritage, you've seen it. It's very basic. Heritage Christian Fellowship is a gospel-centered body of, is a gospel-centered body of believers fiercely dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. Or put more plainly, we, we are disciples making disciples. This is who we are. This is what we think God has called us to do. This is not something that happens overnight. It's slow. It's intentional. It's intimate. It's relational. It reflects the heartbeat of God in the church. We put it this way in our mission statement, right? We talk about making disciples and make disciples. We're dedicated to this, and it takes time. It's not easy, but we want to put our hand to this. That's why we have one of our core values as disciple-making. Another one of our core values is missional focus. And so how do we do that on a very practical level here at Heritage? Well, there's a ton of ways you can do it. And we have, we have these four pillars of ministry. We, we have family ministry and discipleship communities and, and corporate worship and mission and outreach. And all these are ways that we kind of live out the Great Commission in our neighborhood and in the world around us. And so we are inviting the people of Heritage, those growing disciples who, who, who want to lead others to follow Jesus, we are inviting you constantly to be a part of what God is doing in, in the ministries of Heritage Christian Fellowship. There's a thousand ways. You can, you can go from being someone who, who sits in, in the, in the the pew, to who sits in the circle, to who then puts their hand to making disciples, who make disciples. There's a thousand ways that we can serve. And we're working on new ways to, to raise up disciples who lead. 
One of the things I'm working on right now for this coming fall, it, we're calling it the, the Pastoral Leadership Development, a PLD. It's, it's, a, it's a cohort of men who want to be developed. Men who have a sense of call in their life, who, who just sense that God wants them to serve in, in a way, but they've been unable to figure out what that looks like. And so we're creating this place, a, a cohort, a, a community where men can gather over the course of 10 months and be equipped and discipled uh, to become the leaders God has intended them to be, to be empowered and emboldened and sent out for the glory of God. And so if, 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 if you're here and that's something that excites you, the thought of being developed, the thought of having a place to go and, and be equipped to be a disciple who leads others to follow Jesus, I want, we're creating those spaces. Kathy is creating that within the women's ministry. We're creating places and spaces for this to happen. Next week, Jeremy's going to unpack that a little bit more for us. So the goal of our church is not that you would be involved in a bunch of church activity. That's not it. Our goal is not that you would simply know a lot of stuff. That's not our goal as the church. Our goal is transformation. The goal is that you and I would, would remain in the love of Jesus, that you and I would reflect the love of Jesus to one another, that we would reproduce that love in others. And one day Jesus is coming back. Right now he's, he's enthroned in heaven, but one day all this madness will stop, and one day Jesus will set all things right, and he'll make all things new. But until he returns, or until he takes us home, in Medford, Oregon, for Heritage Christian Fellowship, we are committed, fiercely committed to making disciples who make disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for, for the vision and the, that you've given your church, God, the biblical vision you've given your church, God. And I thank you, Jesus, that you have modeled for us exactly what it is you call us to be and do. That you've called us to to reflect your very love to one another. God, you've called us to, to remain connected to you by your love, that we might not only just have faith in you, but God, that we might be, be transformed, molded, shaped, sanctified into image bearers who, 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 who are having the, the image of Christ formed within us. And God, you've called your church to reproduce your love in the world around us, God, to go and make disciples who make disciples. God, this is difficult and hard, but beautiful. It's led by you. It's empowered by your spirit. God, would you move in our midst? God, would you move in our church? Would you make us a place where we are a collection of disciples who make disciples? We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.